You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. On this episode, Julie and me chat with two amazing brand ambassadors, Zara Bates, the global brand ambassador for Cavassier, and Kelly Rivers, the brand ambassador for Sipsmith Gin. They share stories about historical cocktails that are made with both cognac and gin. Their history, their passion for Cavassier and Sipsmith, they also share their journeys in the beverage world, how they became brand ambassadors, and we have a lot of laughs along the way. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite cocktail and enjoy the show. Zara and Kelly, Julie and I are so excited and so honored that you are both joining Served Up today. Thank you so much. Woo, 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 woo. Thank you for having us. It's always so much fun to be able to spend time with uh, great ladies in our field. And it's important to do. Yes, absolutely. Um, Can you tell us, and let's go ahead and start off with you, Zara. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and what led you into the beverage industry? Um, What led me into the beverage industry was really um, a necessity, a family necessity, like many people um, in the hospitality industry, your parents kind of tell you what to do. So my mother owned a beauty salon and she uh, also wanted to keep me out of trouble. So at a very young age, I would help out at her salon, which meant that I picked up towels. Um, I carried drinks to the ladies that came in to have their hair and nails done. So that meant tea, but also champagne and wine. And then I would clean up after them and thank them for coming. So that was like my very first introduction. And then I've never been in any other industry since. Isn't it so true? It's just this, um, this industry just grabs you. Once it grabs a hold of you, you, and I've said this multiple times, you either love it or you just don't. So you so found, <laughs> you know, so you, you discovered very early on that this was for you. I definitely fought it. I think most people that are introduced that way go like, and try anything and everything to not be in that world. But then it's just, it's, it was just in my nature. It just is who I am. I'm somebody who loves to connect with other people and I happen to really love cocktails. And so that when those two worlds come together, there's no going back. There's, they're right. There is no going back. Well, well what, what led you from kind of that salon uh, environment to where you are today? Because if our listeners don't know, I mean, we have two complete rockstar celebrity brand ambassadors on this show today that are wonderful human beings as well. But Zara, you know, you went from working in your mother's shop and today you are the global brand ambassador for Cavassier, which is no small deal. So can you tell us, you know, how did you get from there to here to now? So from my mother's salon, I decided that um, obviously your parents don't pay you, or at least in our house, (laughs) parents definitely don't pay you. Uh, And I wanted to make some money. So at 13, I decided I was going to go and work at the swap meet and I made tacos and served ice cream. So I ran both of those stands and that kind of sparked that little entrepreneurial side and then um, moved on to movie theaters. And I worked in movie theaters for a while. And then um, when I was old enough, I went to bars and restaurants restaurants because all all of the other times was like high school. And so I obviously was not allowed to, um, my mother was fine with me serving alcohol, but nobody else was. Um, So once I got to became of age, I um, started working in restaurants and bars and it's I started actually in restaurants and I begged to be put behind a bar probably for a full year straight. Every day, I asked managers at uh, the bar that I worked at to put me behind the bar, and I was told no 
for a full year straight. And then finally, after that, they were just tired of me asking. And they said, you have two weeks. If you can, if you're good at it, we'll keep you in there. And if you're not, you can never ask again. And I said, okay. And I was terrible, but the customers loved me. So I got to stay behind the bar. <laughs> you learned the hard way. It's so like I learned the hard way too. No it's doubt. so trial by fire. It really is. And then what brought you to where, I mean, now you're this global brand ambassador for a very complicated and complex and lovely spirit of cognac. I was really very curious. And I think that that's probably something Kelly and I really have in common is that curiosity uh, took me to different countries. It uh, made me ask questions of my industry. So I ended up staging um, all around the United States uh, for a year. I chose to say yes to everything for a year, which was great and awful. <laughs> <laughs> and um, by the end of it, I definitely was nearing a nervous breakdown, but um, I was lucky enough to be able to stage at places like Williams and Graham, um, to stage at Trick Dog, um, to go to Candelaria in Paris and stage there. Um, so I was lucky enough to um, work at uh, White Lion. Um, so like a lot of these great, this is what's so incredible about our industry is if you are curious like that, and if you want to learn and ask questions about what it takes to be um, great within the hospitality sector, all it takes is asking and then pushing yourself in unreasonable ways. <laughs> but amen to that. <laughs> you can definitely achieve your goals. Um, and then after that, that's really when um, I felt like, okay, I've learned these things about our industry. I feel like I have something to say to our industry. I feel like I have um, things that I can really base conversations, true in-depth conversations about with our industry and um, touch on things that is both needed and wanted. Um, instead of just going out there and uh, just saying, oh, look at me, aren't I fancy? Um, you are you know. fancy. I'm just going to say that right now. You're super fancy. <laughs> you are my fanciest friend, Zara. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> I'll tell my mother. She'll <laughs> vehemently deny it, but secretly be proud. Yes. <laughs> well, Kelly, this brings us over to you. You know, you also have this very dynamic category of, of spirits that you work with and that's gin and it's Sipsmith and you're a celebrated um, brand ambassador and human. I mean, it's, it's not an easy category, right? I mean, we're not talking about maybe vodka. It is gin and it is Sipsmith and it is beautiful and lovely. You know, what, what brought you to become a brand ambassador? Where did you start? Well, What's really funny is uh, I always say in all my conversations about like getting people to understand and appreciate the botanically beautiful is what I like to call them, which, which we know is gin. So the only other thing that's harder to talk about and harder to educate on in the United States besides gin is brandy and cognac. So <laughs> I am uh, truly in awe of what Zara does on a daily uh, a daily basis, but she does it so effortlessly. It never, it always is a passion and it never seems like work, but I got into this industry again at a really early age, um, mostly because I hate getting up in the morning. Like I really hate getting up in the morning. Um, like it was like Christmas morning and my older sister would come in and like, hey, you know, Santa's been here. And I'm just like, Santa will be there when I wake up. I'm like not getting up to open presents. Like I am so not, my parents would always say, well, when you get out there and you get your, a job, you're going to have to learn to wake up early. And I was like, heck no. Like, so <laughs> I was like, what can I do that I like to do that doesn't require me to wake up in the morning? <laughs> and that was to be a race car driver. I really oh. wanted to be a race car driver. Um I, I would take apart cars. I would fix cars. I got a job. I'm sorry, mom. You're just learning about this now. I got a job uh, when I was in high school um, because I'm, I don't uh, get reactions to poison, I, uh, poison oak because I'm from Northern California. So we have poison oak over there. So they let me uh, would take apart the cars that would went down the ravines because I wouldn't get, uh, you know, I wouldn't break out and itch. So I started to like take apart cars and junk cars and uh, put them together and street race again. Sorry, sorry, mom. Um, but I would street race with my friends and I really wanted to be a race car driver. And I took a bunch of classes and courses up at Sears Point in Northern California. And I was doing really well. I was on my way to get my class six racing license when I flipped my car. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So again, sorry, mom. Um, and flipped my car. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was I basically uh, totaled my car. And at that point you had to pay as you went. And I couldn't pay anymore because my, you know, my normal job of working in a bird store, feeding birds and uh, working at an import export deli didn't afford me to get more another engine. So I had to think about something else that I really loved doing. And that was cooking. Um, I've been cooking at an early age, um, since I was 16, if my parents, all my family was in the same country together, I would make Christmas dinner. Um, and so I just liked to cook in high school. I had a cheesecake making business, um, to help like create some extra cash. Um, but what ended up happening was I decided I wanted to be a chef. And another thing about being a chef is I didn't ha- think I had to go to college. Cause that was the thing. My parents were like, when you go to college, we're not paying for it. I paid my way. You're not going to, we're not going to, so get, get scholarships. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to go to college. It's not for me. I really want to do this race car driving thing or work in kitchens. And um, so I started working in anything that had to do with food, uh, sandwich deli shop um, to, I got a job as in a rectory making breakfasts for uh, Roman (laughs) Orthodox Catholics. I'm not religious at all, but I ended up getting to do that. Um, also it was really nice whenever I'd sneeze and they'd say, bless me just in case, you know, checking off all my boxes. Um, so anything that had to do with food, I just loved, I loved talking to people about it. I loved eating it. Um, and so this is what I wanted to do. And my parents were like, you should go to culinary school. If that's something you want to do. I'm like, cool. So I applied to the Cordon Bleu in Paris and I got in and my parents said, no way in hell, pretty much. You're not going to Paris to go to school for something that you're going to grow out of. Um, and so what I ended up doing was I applied to go to the CCA, the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco, in the heart of the Tenderloin, lovely, lovely place of San Francisco. And I went to culinary school and I worked, um, I still worked full time and I went to school full time and my parents were living out of the country. So I was like paying their mortgage full time and I was uh, just kind of doing this cooking thing and really loving it. And I ended up doing my internship in Tokyo where wow. I finally got finally got to go to the Cordon Bleu in Tokyo and I got some degrees in Saucier and Garmanger and I took when I came back I took some I took some classes at the CIA in Hyde Park in pastry um so very like from not going to school to going completely in school but I got my first bartending job um in Tokyo um because I was doing my internship and they didn't have to pay you but I still had to live and so I got a job uh as a cocktail waitress from one of the people that worked in the hotel I was doing an internship with in at called uh, in Rapungi, which is the club district of, of Japan. And the club was called Gas Panic. And basically- uh, That's a really weird name for a club, by the way. Well, no, it's not because of the fact that this was the time that they opened up the clubs was when they had the gas attack at the, um, the Rapungi desk, the station. So there was a terrorist attack Oh, wow. on the, the, the J, the, the blue line. And so that's what I named. Yeah. In okay, Japanese. So it's just, so that's why it's called gas panic. <laughs> it's a sad, sad club. <laughs> yeah. But you, oh, you could go in, you could go in at 16 as long and drink at 18, as long as you had a drink in the hand. And that was the law, you know? So basically my job was I had this like menu of just like drink and mixers. Not, there was no Japanese hard shake and nothing very, anything like that. It was, again, the late nineties. And so I just walked around with music super loud with a bunch of intoxicated, poorly dancing people. And I would have a flashlight and I would just like flash it onto this menu that I ran, wore around my neck and they would just point to what they wanted. And so I would get the drinks for them. And I remember, and I hate the song to the day because I just got a third degree burn um, from having an iron drop on my arm. And it was like, I had a big blister the entire way and it was hot and sweaty. So I finally took the bandage off and uh, this guy ordered a vodka soda. Maybe this is also why vodka soda is not my drink of choice. I don't know. <laughs> and the song that was playing was Chumbawamba's Bum oh, yeah. Bumping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See your, your reaction. You don't even like, you didn't even <laughs> have to have the burn to know how bad this song was, but I gave him his drink and he started jumping around at the chorus and he spilt his vodka soda on my 
burn. Ow. Oh my so gosh. I started screaming because it was super loud. And he just like waved me off and took the back side of his arm and just wiped off the spilled drink <gasps> off my arm. First time I've ever kicked anybody out of the bar. So there, there was a first there. And I ended up having to go behind the bar and put my arm under like lukewarm water to clean oh it out. And, just, and the manager was like, well, you're here, make some drinks. Because we're not paying you not to do anything. So I started making, you know, vodka sodas, gin and tonics, you know, rum and Cokes. The thing they eat the most, whatever drink it was, was a Harvey Wallbanger because Galliano just came into Japan at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was the big thing. And so I was just like, fine, this is like line cooking, make some drinks. Next time I came in for my shift, uh, my my cocktail sign was out of my locker and I was like, uh, am I being fired? And I don't know. And it turns out they're like, you're much better behind the bar than you're on the floor. So that's where you're going to be. <laughs> so you got knocked down and you got back up again. Wow. Oh, oh, that's it. I'm leaving Bridget. I'm done. <laughs> I had to do it. I but, had to do it. Yeah. But I mean, what ended up happening was, um, so that was kind of the start of me cooking and then bartending. So I would cook until whatever time uh, was over. And then I would go to whatever dive bar I could get another job at because it paid better. Because at the time I was making, you know, in San Francisco as a line cook in the early 2000s, well, the dot-com was going crazy. I was making seven fifty an hour behind a line. So bartending just helps subsidize. And that's just kind of the way it went until I was working at this, um, a very regarded in, in the Bay Area, Latin American uh, restaurant, and they needed someone to work part time behind the bar. And I raised my, I like rose my hand, and they let me do it. And I just fell in love because I had to learn how to communicate with people. Being in kitchens, there's a lot of grunting, and there's a lot of yes, chef, and there's not a lot of conversation going on. So bartending found my humanity again, and I got to engage. And I remember when I got, sorry, this is super long-winded. I remember when I got into this idea of learning the classics and when the research became very uh, important to me was I had a customer come up and we were like, that we know how to make really good drinks is the birth of like fresh ingredients and fresh lime juice. But somebody asked for a Zazerac and I asked the bar manager at the time and we called him wristbands. Um, because he wore these like sweat wristbands that were really bad. And so we called them wristbands and I asked him how to make a Zazerac. And I don't remember exactly what the recipe he was, but there was Godiva chocolate in it. And <laughs> so I made the drink for the guy. I'm like, here's this bar manager supposed to know. I don't know this drink. I made it for him and I handed it to the, the, the guest who was very gracious and drank it and paid for it. And when I asked them how they liked their Zazerac, well, that, they were like, that was a fine drink. A Zazerac, it was not. So I ended up going home and just going down like birth at Wikipedia, like a rabbit hole of the Zazrak, which then led me to other classic whiskey cocktails, which then led me to New Orleans, which then led me to like, you know, like anything I could get to get me something. So if somebody asked me again for a drink, I knew exactly what it was. So I wouldn't be embarrassed. And that's kind of where my love of history and flavors and just different ideas and engaging with somebody about like, hey, it's it's okay to say I don't know. And maybe learn something as opposed to give somebody uh, something with Godiva chocolate, in, which is delicious on its own. But again, a Zazrak does not make. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I just kind of started bartending. So just when my parents were like, my daughter's a chef, they like, like, you're not going back to college. I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm going to just go to the bar, like all that money I spent in all the time in culinary school. Yeah, whatever. I'm going to be a bartender. Still to this day, they, they don't understand. They're like, so when are you going to get back into cooking? I'm like, yeah, that's fine, mom. No problem. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Chandler Bing too. That's what my family calls me. Cause I don't know what the heck I do. <laughs> Cause that's different every day. So they call me Bing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would, uh, bartend, I was bartending in San Francisco and, um, I opened up a whiskey, American whiskey bar, which we wanted to have at the time, the most amount of American whiskeys in the Bay Area. It was barbecue um, in Berkeley, a place that's no longer there called T-Rex. Uh, amazing people came through that. And um, I had to start getting people to understand about whiskeys that wasn't the big names because this is like the craft whiskey movement. 
And all these people started like looking at like, you know, some of like Hudson, Hudson whiskeys and uh, uh, you're talking about your, your Texas whiskeys and anything. And all these people started making gin. And I started to like have to get people, these whiskey people to understand how to drink gin and gin cocktails. And they wanted nothing to do with me. So I started my thing, my path on gin because there was no voices in gin. There was definitely no female voices in gin or people that look like me in gin. Everybody only wanted to talk about whiskey. And I was like, hey, you have to drink this gin to get the whiskey. Otherwise, the distillery is not going to to survive. And I remember like having that aha light bulb moment. And I went home and I got myself a Gmail account because I was still on Rocket Mail, which we now know is Yahoo. This is how old I am. So I got myself a Gmail account. I made myself some business cards. And I went to Tales of the Cocktail that year and just passed out these business cards. And the card said my name. Um, my my email was all of the drinks. Um, and then what I said I was, this was again right around like Michael Jackson saying that he was now the self-proclaimed king of pop. So I wrote myself as the self-proclaimed uh, global gin ambassador and protector of Geneva, both Auda and Yunga. And I just gave out these cards. Uh, to people, anybody who would pay me events. And then I started getting people emailing me and asking me questions. And I was like, oh, poop. Now I got to figure it out. <laughs> now I got <laughs> I to answer them. And that kind of took me on a very long around thing of being a, a Jenna educator for like the last 15, 16 years. And I've, I've worked in a lot of places and I've been very lucky to travel and meet some amazing people that believed in me. And uh, Sipsmith came along and was like, hey, we love what you do. We're going to pay you. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's that's how I got there. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your time. It's, we can go now. <laughs> <laughs> that is an amazing story, both of you. So how does one young lady that's a Crevoisier global brand manager and you, Kelly, that is a Sipsmith gym ambassador educator. How do you two connect and how do your two worlds collide? Well, oh, there's so much. <laughs> Our paths have crossed many, many times without like us actually meeting. The number of times uh, Kelly's been mentioned to me uh, and I was like, I know that name, but I can't put a face to the name um, because we were both, I think, She's in Northern California. I was in Southern California, but we were both kind of crisscrossing between the United States, Europe, all around. And um, we finally ended up when we started working for the same company. Yeah. Um, I feel like really that's when we connected. And when we connected, it was just like, oh, yeah, I got this to tell you. So many things to tell you. Me too. Um, <laughs> it was like gangbusters for sure. <laughs> And the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a running joke with our American whiskey ambassadors uh, for the Jim Beam uh, collections that said we were at a dinner and Zara and I were talking and we didn't realize that other people had left the table because <laughs> we were just in, we were just chatting back and forth and people just kind of got up and left um, because they're like, yeah, this is this is definitely a conversation that we we don't understand so much so. <laughs> That's incredible. I can imagine. I mean, it, it sounds like you two are our soul sisters and, you know, and, and really specializing in two categories that I guess if, if people would just assume are polar opposite between the cognac and the gin category. So it, are you here to prove them wrong? Are there a lot more similarities than people might know? There's a lot more connective tissue than I think people would actually associate with our two spirits. Um, they're, they're both very surprising spirits, even though you think about them as, um, as you said, on opposite sides, uh, sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are so many aspects of both gin and and cognac not only just because they're both you're traditionally thought of as your or one's definitely european and one's <laughs> thought of as european and the grassroots but also the fact that they are unlikely best friends in cocktails and oh. we, yeah and so 
one of the things that got us into some of this like really rabbit hole geekiness of, of cocktails and the history is basically our conversation around the French 75. And there was the Tales of the Cocktail was doing the French 75 and we were offered both of our spirits to submit or be part of it. And we thought it would be really funny to do a <laughs> fake online fight between the two spirits. Oh my gosh. Because if anybody knows, and if you love the French 75, you're either usually in one camp or the other camp. So we thought it'd be really fun to put a... It was a very Brandy Monica time of that cocktail is Love mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very pretty. So who won? Who won the online battle? Everybody won. I mean, <laughs> seriously, it's a French 75. It's delicious. <laughs> it is delicious. Is there, a, are there other cocktails with those shared histories? Um, definitely. But like, as we were saying, um, first, I would love to tell you a little bit about why this cocktail really um, enamored us is because every time we thought we got to the bottom of it in our conversations, because we started off as this fake fight, but then we would have to prove why it was ours. And so we had to go further and further back in history. And then we found out that it was actually both of ours because both gin and, and uh, brandy originated in the cocktail. Together. So, together. Yes. Together. I don't think a lot of people know that. I think that they feel like they have to choose sides. Can you give us some back, like maybe some background on that, on the history? Oh, would you like me to start? Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. So um, when we had first started um, going down this rabbit hole, we decided, oh, well, we're going to have this fight. So we decided to create an event around it and we decided to call it Get Off the Fence. Um, oh. One, because Fencing was a shared tradition between the British and the French. Um, two, <laughs> um, you kind of, when people say get off the fence, it means you have to choose a side. Um, and then finally, when we started um, kind of testing out and then um, people online really were calling us out more than each other because we thought of it as like a fake fight and people thought it was real out there. <laughs> so, oh God. You had to be like, oh, wait a second. What is the most polite way I can do this? Because this isn't like supposed to be a real fight. Um, hold on. Okay, well, let me share like some other people that have had conversations about this online. Let me pull out some of these little notes of history. Um, and then I would have to like, you know how they say, you know, you have to show your receipts. I had to show my receipts. I, was like, I swear. Oh my gosh. <laughs> here's this, here's this like, um, here's the first documented printing of it um, by the Washington Herald in 1915. And you see both of them, they're both there. <laughs> oh my gosh. So so what we think is is the originated, you know, from from the 1915 printing, and then the first time they actually wrote the recipe was in 1919, and it was uh, basically equal parts cognac gin um, in one drink, and it was in a coupe glass. There was no citrus, there was no bubbly wine, nothing that you would think is recognizable as the French 75, which is maybe one of the reasons why it didn't last the the test of time. However, it's delicious, and it was a really good starting point of, of having this get off the fence conversation um, that we went, we took we took guests through and consumers. We took this to uh, Asheville Cocktail Week. We did this at Gin World in St. Louis, um, and it was really interesting to see different cities or different people have different reactions. Most of the people would come; there'd be mostly the gin fans because that's what they knew for most brunch brunch res re restaurants and such. And then you had your outliner of your cognac lovers and they're like, yeah, they were holding on strong, man. Those cognac French 75 <laughs> people are just like digging their heels in. No way am I going to like this gin thing. No, no. And so it was really interesting that especially like a gin world in St. Louis, all these gin people like they flipped. I thought I had the room. I was like, yeah, this is my town. This is my, this is my event. And then at the end they're like, yeah, we kind of really like the cognac one better. And I was like, you guys, you're like leaving me. What the heck? And I was definitely not a good winner. I literally, because I was so surprised, my body just started running around the room without like my mom going, wait a second, be, be good about this. I think they played the Rocky theme for you at that point too. You're high-fiving people. Like what the heck? Not a gracious w winner that one, but. 
I did not win the overall competition, though, to be fair. But I still like revel in that one moment. (laughs) Yeah. So anyone listening from that was there, you guys are on my list and I'm taking you down. Um, But yeah, so we have like this 1919 recipe of them both together, equal, playing really well together. And then we have 1922 is the Mm -hmm. next the next recipe. And all of a sudden, they're still in there together. They're just not in equal proportions anymore. Well, what happened? Um, Well, there was just like lots of bartenders. I like to call it like the tale of all the Harrys because like the first uh, like person, it was like Harry Tepe um, at Harry's bar. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Henri, cause he was actually French. Um, mm-hmm. And he had his version of it. And then comes um, Harry Craddock. And then he has his version of it. I think that's the 1922 one that we were talking about. And then Harry McKeon comes version was like they start off equal parts then one of them is okay we're going to do more gin less cognac and then i'm going to come in and the next one is i'm going to go back to having cognac as a lead but i'm going to put in a little absinthe to highlight the gin so each one is kind of like showing up slightly differently because just like we do now every bartender has their own vision and their own way to talk about a cocktail like it's cocktails are conversations oh. And really? you, you do tailor made based on what your clientele is going to be. Like if your clientele is a little bit more in the aged brown spirit, which is there's nothing wrong with that, even though gin's better, um, <laughs> then what's going to happen is they're going to maybe highlight that more. But I do love the fact in the 1926 recipe where cognac is definitely the bigger spirit in in the French 75, you have a little bit of absence to kind of balance out some of the London dry. But if you think about it, what's going on in 1922 is there's a lot of damage from the war. So a lot of these, these distilleries haven't been able to make the new make spirit of gin where they might have fat held on to some of the reserves of cognac. And so there was probably a lot more of it. I mean, again, we're only speculating because we weren't there, but it's like a good thing to think about what was going on during in the world at that point when these these spirits were were being put in these cocktails. Well, I love that you mentioned all the Harrys. I know Harry Craddock was famous for saying, you know, you want to uh, wake it up, not rock it to sleep, right? So when he shook cocktails, I know he he shook them really hard. I think, but he had less ice in them. <laughs> he did. He had less ice in them. To be fair, yeah. Yeah. Like a walnut walnut cube size was kind of like the average. And I'm like, yeah. so what kind of walnuts? European walnuts, American walnuts? <laughs> and this is like the geeky rabbit hole that we go down to. I'm happy to go down the rabbit hole with you. <laughs> Are you ready to continue the rabbit hole, ladies? <laughs> Let's talk about oh. some cocktail books that that um, yes. perhaps had the gin and the, the cognac um, married together. Before you do, can you tell us what the recipe is so that our viewers that might not be as familiar would know exactly what that is. This is the thing. There's many recipes. So we could go through each recipe, but like we've kind of done the basics on the balance one. But um, one of the cool things that Kelly brought up to me for this, these cocktails is I thought that they were shaken, but these were stirred cocktails before we actually get to the, the one that actually has sparkling wine in it. So this, this is um, like one totally blew me away. Yeah, so the the original one from 1919 um, that has the recipes, it's going to be equal proportions, um, you know, your Sip Smith gin, your your Cavassier, and then it's got a small amount of grenadine, a bar spoon of lemon juice because they wanted to bring out some of the bright notes, and then it just, and water. They actually add water along with the ice to help with the dilution, and then they stir it, and then they put a lemon peel in if it was around, um, not always. Um, so that was kind of where the originating comes from. And then the next cocktail, um, I feel like it took a little bit of a dive because then it was more Sip Smith Gin <laughs> and less cognac. But it definitely went up on the lemon juice, um, which amplifies cognac really nicely. Um, then they swapped from lemon juice to grenadine being a bar spoon. And then again, stirred, served in that coupe again. Yeah. And then from there, we go from the 1926, which I think is a, it's an okay <laughs> cocktail, but here we have twice as much of the Cavassier than the London Dry Gin, but we had to add absinthe because also absinthe around this time was very much in vogue. And you started seeing this in a lot of the improved cocktails. So we have a few dashes of that. And if you're making this at home, again, 
two dashes of a good uh, absinthe is all you want. As our master distiller, Jared Brown says, anything more than two dashes is now an absinthe cocktail. So very much <laughs> that's true. Uh, go light on your absinthe because it really does help bring out those those citrus and herbal notes of the of the uh, cavassier. And then we're back down to, back up to the grenadine. So we pull up the grenadine a little bit more. But this one actually has no lemon juice in it whatsoever. Again, is stirred and served up. And Can then you- we get to 1927, and we finally get sparkling wine. Yeah, and by 1933 in the American book, here's how Gin and Sipsmith are like, or sorry, Gin and Sipsmith, Gin and <laughs> Cognac are in totally opposite things. They are not going to ever meet again. We're going to, there. that's the Here's How book. Everyone has that. Mine, mine binding came apart, but yeah. <laughs> so this is where you either have your gin lovers or you have your Cognac lovers. This is where we get your powdered sugar, isn't it? Um, so no more grenadine. You have your lemon juice. You're shaking it now. You're straining it. And you're putting sparkling wine. But one thing we do agree on, and this has kind of like helped us come back after the fight of which one do you like more? Is that it's served on ice. This was like the time when, um, because this was like during officers clubs that both had champagne and ice available to them. Um, And this is also a way of kind of having so many things being revealed between the spirits because the ice actually slowed down how you were tasting the drink because it was in a longer format now. Um, I find that um, it made me drink it faster, but... (laughs) (laughs) It was just so dang refreshing. It was so refreshing. And, and cognac and gin when it's hot. Yes, yes, yes. And cognac and gin can be refreshing. Yes. yes. Can we just say that out loud? Cognac, cognac and, and gin are refreshing. Are refreshing, um, folks. So for all of you who are listening, regardless if you uh, you think cognac is the way to go or you celebrate the gin, just make sure whatever you do, put it on ice. Our favorite ice is Sonic Ice. Pebble ice is delicious ice. Absolutely. I love that. Can you talk just very briefly about the difference of grenadine that you were mentioning versus the bright red? I don't know what if it's number seven, 14, 54, five, whatever red food coloring that's in the current uh, available grenadines on the shelf. Um, so my understanding of like the original grenadine, it was a pomegranate syrup essentially. So it, why pomegranate syrup is because pomegranates have bitter, it has um, acid to it and it has its own natural sweetness. So it's a very balanced syrup that you're gonna end up getting instead of having just like a sugar bomb. What about you, Kelly? Well, so yeah, the grenadines of the time are definitely uh, a pomegranate syrup. And we should, uh, we should say specify syrup because there's a lot of people that will go to the market and find pomegranate molasses and use that as grenadine in cocktail making. That is not the same thing. That's, that's yeah. On the other opposite spectrum of the bright pink colorful thing that you would find in your uh, Shirley temples, so to speak. So um, it was definitely a syrup um, as, and not as sweet as a molasses, but the other thing that they did because Pomegranates only ripen once a year and they weren't necessarily very shelf stable. They would add a little bit of orange blossom water to it to help highlight the floralness of it. So if you're making your own at home and you've got a lot of like, you know, pomegranates around and you want to juice them or you buy the juice yourself and you make a simple syrup with it, just add just a few drops of orange flower water. And it really does highlight those more um, herbal and citrus and floral notes of the pomegranate. Yeah, I love that tip. I actually have not heard that tip um, before. And it, even with orange flower water, you have to be so gentle with it, right? Otherwise, so- it tastes like licking grandma. Don't lick grandma. <laughs> Don't lick so grandma. It's yeah. so true. Yeah, it, it can be a bit funky for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about, um, you know, what, what does cognac and gin really do in cocktails? Well, for me, sorry, I was having a drink of water. Um, for me, sure, that was um, water. That was totally water. <laughs> that was Cavassier and water. Let's be real. Yes, <laughs> grape water. <laughs> Very concentrated grape water. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I think about what cognac does for cocktails, um, cognac is very elegant. 
It's subtle. Um, it is both refined, but also relevatory. So um, especially Cabasse, which has these um, lovely floral notes, but also reaches deep down to like these earthy notes. So you have this spectrum of um, flavors and aromatics that can show up out of cognac um, that it's all up to you on what you decide you wanna pull out of it, which um, have, being able to have like lots of different colors on your palette when you're painting is a lot better than just having a single note. Yeah, and I think for gin, and one of the reasons why two thirds of all the classic cocktails that have kind of stood the test of time are gin-based is because gin is the perfect spirit to marry, carry, and elevate a drink. It not only brings a little bit of proof or heat from the spirit, but it has these, these amazing botanicals that do different things. So let's say you have a very citrusy driven gin. Um, you could use like a very herbal cocktail, like the last word, and that gin will help pull out some of the citrus notes that aren't there. You know, it's kind of like the citrus peel over the drink at the end that really highlights it. And so, you know, gin does, is just like, again, we're talking about this palette. We'll just like, it's like technicolor when you're making drinks with it. Um, so those are kind of why they do it, but what they do together is I love, um, putting gin in a cognac cocktail because cognac is not known for having herbal notes to it. Um, the main reason is one, it's a fruit. <laughs> um, and if you're getting herbal notes out of grapes, it means that you haven't pressed your grapes properly. So you're not really going to want to have that showing up in your cognac. But if you're adding gin into this cocktail, you're actually giving these little niches that uh, cognac has. You're having something that can fill those niches and create even more character, but without actually changing the cognac, it just elevates it. So um, that's one of the things that I love about um, mixing with another spirit like gin. And then for gin cocktail, when you add when you add cognac to it, you're not only giving it the like the base notes or the elements of the wood because the gin wouldn't be done but you're also allowing um ha bring up the base notes those those like underlining the the cinnamons and the nutmegs that are kind of at the end tail end of a gin when you add cognac to it you're bringing them closer forward you're actually highlighting those a little bit more than you normally do and it kind of helps mellow out some of the stronger pine notes that you might get it brings this like third dimensional drink of a gin drink into like this technicolor and both these spirits are so dynamic it's a no-brainer that you put them in one drink like, why not? Like, have it all. And back Maybe. in the day, they used to be together all the time. I mean, if you think about um, both cognac and gin, they were really the first global spirits. And they were traveling the world together in ships. <laughs> so these were like, if you think about, um, it was really cognac, gin, and rum. And like the rum would go to the sailors, the gin would go to the officers, and then the captain would hold the cognac for the aristocracy <laughs> in his cabin. <laughs> That's great. You guys are making me thirsty. So what are some refreshing drinks that you would suggest or recipes that would include cognac and gin? Oh, there's so many. Um, I'll, Kelly, do you want to start with? Yeah. So one of my favorites is, and this is kind of like talks about a lot about how we kind of forget things or after a few too many, we might not remember exactly. So this is why, you know, in the French 75, it goes back and forth. Is it cognac? Is it gin? We forgot they were together. So because we had one too many, probably one of the, the, the earliest ones is coming from the Savoy cocktail book published in 1930, which is the Millionaire's Club. I mean, perfect name, right? Millionaires. It's elegant. It, it, it says sophisticate, sophisticate. I can't talk. I need more gin. Um, sophistication. <laughs> um, this is a time where different classes and different types of people were getting together and drinking the same thing. And they really wanted to have this aspirational experience. But if you look at some of the millionaires clubs, especially if you go online, a lot of them say that it's a whiskey cocktail or it's a rum cocktail. And we forget that sometimes when we go back to where we have a drink, you know, at this beautiful hotel and we take it back home, maybe we didn't have cognac around in the United States because all of a sudden, you know, you know, war and prohibition happened. And so we had to use what we want. So apple brandy sometimes gets snuck in there or bourbon gets snuck in there. Um, or we, we take it closer, like into like uh, Cairo where the, the suffering bastard came and all of a sudden it was just like, now we're, we're using um, grenadine and, and, and instead of sugar. And so all this thing kind of gets played around, but my favorite one is the millionaires club with cognac and uh, gin, because again, 
it is about simplicity. They're not trying to outdo each other. They're just working together. They're just hanging out, having a good time. And it's such an equal, it's an equal part of each one. And they're really doing their best to showcase what each one has to offer without being, without talking over the other one. And that that's was, am- about that's the- amazing. So what's, what's in it? It's equal parts, cognac, gin, uh, cognac, gin, sweet vermouth, uh, bitters. And, oh man, what is the, last ingredient. There's one other ingredient. Sorry, I'm not as prepared with the millionaire's cocktail. I just love to drink them. <laughs> uh, grenadine, you said? There's a, a grenadine in the in the millionaire's, yeah. Well, it sounds delicious and it sounds very spirit forward, which um which I could use right now actually. <laughs> sounds delicious. <laughs> this time of day. Absolutely. Um can you give us a little bit of um maybe the reason why there is a resurgence now of what, why you think that there's a resurgence now of both gin cocktails and cognac cocktails when really vodka was a big player for so many years, you know, we've gone through so much in our industry as far as highlighting spirits and what's cool and what's trendy, you know, is it mezcal at the moment, you know, where are we today with gin and cognac and drinks? Two things. One is that there's a lot more gin and cognac available. One, because after Phylloxera happened, that cognac had to rebuild. And then two, because a lot of people were making um, gin to pay for their whiskey. Um, But also now, like after a lot of that happened for gin, um, the quality stuff has keeps floating to the top. And therefore, there's a lot more quality of both available. Um, and then because that sense of curiosity that I feel like all bartenders really have is keeping to doing those that research and rediscovering all of these kind of um, historical split base cocktails and getting excited about that. And uh, the resurgence of that is really kind of, it always starts, I think, from bartenders um, kind of really going, hey, wait, I found this thing and uh, let me show you that. And then somebody else goes, oh, I saw this recipe for it. Um, I think that it's like this. Let me do my version of that. And um, they share it with their uh, the people that come to their uh, bars and they share their stories and how they came about it. And then those customers want to replicate it at home or uh, help a friend discover it. And so that's my personal take on it. Biased as a former bartender. (laughs) I think a lot of it also has to do with, especially, I mean, if you think about it now and in times of, 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 COVID and how where a lot of um, bars and restaurants are struggling, um, it's, it makes a little bit of sense to split base. It makes sense because it helps keep the cost of the drink in check. And, you know, there's some, you know, Cavassier is a lovely, and I, I think it's probably one of the best affordable, um, elegant brand uh, uh, cognac spirits. But, you know, it's also one of those things of like, how do we, how do we make this last? How do we stretch it? And, you know, it's that kind of like bartender get up and go, you know, trying to figure out every way to cut, like make sure that they get the most bang out of their buck. And, you know, when we're talking about during, you know, prohibition and pre-prohibition and world war, a lot of it split base was because of what was available. And now that we have much more access to these things, we're, we kind of lament about the days gone by, which, you know, I don't think we should because we weren't there and they probably had their own set of things, but you know, where the gin and the cognac cocktails were like, took over, let's say, vodka was because nobody wanted to drink what their parents drank. You know, I knew I didn't want to be caught dead drinking whatever my parents drank. Um, But grandma and grandpa were cool and grandma and grandpa, they knew how to have a good time. And so that was mostly gin and cognac cocktails. (laughs) And so that was, you know, just the 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 reminiscing or the the just kind of projecting what you thought was the good old days kind of to speak. But it definitely was, I think, in modern cocktails, tropical drinks that really brought it back into focus for a lot of bartenders. So true. One of my favorite drinks is a fog cutter. And that really is like more of a modern classic that includes uh, gin and cognac. And um, it really was about creating something um, about blending. And I think that gin is one of those perfect cocktails that elevates so many things for a blend, a cocktail about blending and tropical drinks are really about, you know, blending different things to create a whole new flavor and a really balanced flavor. And cognac really um, 
creates body um, and creates texture. And that I, when I think about like Don the Beachcomber and I think about uh, Vic from Trader Vic's, that is really like what I feel in a, a cocktail from that time is so much texture and body in it. And I think that uh, there's probably a reason why those were reached for. I mean, when I think of Don, I always think about the fact that he was definitely like really focused on rum. Um, if he was mixing with something else, it was probably like a Pisco brandy versus an aged brandy. But when you think of Vic, he definitely wanted that aged brandy to show up. And from two unlikely tropical drink spirits, like you don't, when you go into a tropical bar, you're not really thinking, you know what, I want to have myself a nice cognac tonight, you know, (laughs) that's not the first thing. So to have these, these innovators in this thing introduce not only their, their guests to something that is new because, you know, most people were coming in as adventurous, but also to a spirit that they didn't think that they were going to drink and it worked so well. I mean, I think the suffering bastard is also another really great example. And again, depending on who you talk to, some people think it's whiskey, but no, 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 it's definitely cognac and gin. And, you know, this is coming out of the Cairo Shepherd Hotel in like the 19, late 1950s. But we, again, we see, you know, Dom and Trader Vic's rebring it in and introduce these these unlikely spirits in one drink perfectly blended and perfectly balanced and that's the great thing about cocktails when you get it right you know you got it right that's incredible i think uh, the way that you guys put it and, and bring both two spirits together is so inspiring what would you tell some bartenders and and how would you how would you challenge them to to start doing um, you know, to, to mixing these spirit bases and, and creating something special? What is what is kind of your challenge to them to get them going? One of the great things about bartenders is you never have to challenge them. <laughs> All you have to do is like s- start talking about something and then Bartenders will come and elevate your game so like so much because that's what it's all about. It's really about pushing boundaries. I mean, I think of bartenders as artists for sure. Yeah, I mean. Definitely the the spirits might be the notes, but the bartenders are the conductors. They're the ones that are taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and creating something that's better than the sum of its parts. I mean, that is the best thing about cocktails. So what's, what's next? Where do you see that these two categories um, going? taking over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The sky's the limit, really. I mean, because of the fact that when I think about um, a modern classic um, for most cocktails, um, there's something for every spirit category, but I don't know of a modern classic cognac cocktail. When I think of it, like what would be, like I know a modern classic bourbon cocktail. I know a modern classic gin cocktail. Uh, Delivery. <laughs> maybe, that's our, maybe that's our cocktails. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> but um, like, I would love to see that happen. Um, but I would also really love to see um, split bases um, be a bigger conversation. Cause we don't really like, I haven't seen a, uh, like a tail seminar on split based cocktails. I would love to see bartenders be the ones that are doing that conversation. Cause they're the ones that are bringing it back. Sounds like another brand life series we've got going. It does. It does. It sounds like we need to bring this into the virtual, um, a training world for sure. Like a workshop around that. Because it's really interesting. I mean, that's something that's undiscovered, which we don't usually find so much anymore in our beverage world. Definitely. I think there are people talking about it, but it isn't a wider conversation yet. Just like there were always rumblings of, you know, um, the history of, say, like uh, the martini. But it wasn't until more recently where we've gotten every version of a martini that has been documented. So really being able to open up the conversations and um, say, okay, these are the things that people are talking about. But one, let's really find all of those classic documentations because it's really hard. Like when you start doing research for split-based cocktails, you don't see it within that terminology. You have to go into, um, because that's modern terminology. You have to go into a deep dive of going, okay, um, the history of these two spirits and you have to like put in quotation marks, gin and cognac together to find it. But then you get loads of different recipes for 
just gin and just cognac. So it, it definitely takes some effort, but I think that's half the battle is being willing to make the effort. Well, and especially with the brown-based spirit and uh, what do you call it? Clear, white, white-based spirit, right? And, and having those together. <laughs> unaged. Unaged. <laughs> an age versus an unaged. So I think that's that's really fascinating. I think you guys really have something going there of, of really bringing this this new um, inspiration. Uh, I think I think the other great thing about a split-based cocktail is the fact that, and this is something we found out, Zara and I found out when we started doing the get off the fence and talking about it, it was the fact that it opened up an idea of a cocktail that a certain consumer would not be drinking. So for, for, my, for Sipsmith and Gin, we got to talk to a, a a group of people that might not think that they like gin or they don't drink cognac or don't drink cocktails and, and they're much more sipping after dinner. I mean, at some point, I don't know why this happened or where this happened, but people just decided to pick a side, like either I'm drinking cognac at the end of the night in a little Mm -hmm. neat glass, or I'm drinking gin and cocktails. Like, why did you have to do one or the other? It was just like, I'm digging my feet and this is what it was. And trying to get people to realize that that's not the way it is we found was a little bit difficult, but it, people were very receptive. And so I loved being able to talk to cognac drinkers for the first time. Most times I'm like, hey, cognac drinker person, now let's talk about gin. And they're like, yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had a bad experience. I'm never, but no, really it's, t- no. All right. Well, how about this cognac drinker? Here's a great cocktail with cognac and gin. <laughs> Give it a Just try. Try it in. <laughs> Say it real fast under your breath. <laughs> Well, I know I've enjoyed having you both on the show so much. I can tell by Julie's smile over there that she's enjoyed you as well so much. Um, I do have a challenge for the both of you. (gasps) So let me tell you something. I too, Miss Kelly, um, I'm obsessed with drag racing, actually. And I grew up knowing wait, all wait, wait. about drag what racing. kind of drag racing? So I love funny cars, actually, very, very much. But let me tell you something. One of my idols, her name is Shirley Muldowney. And she was the very first female um, race car driver. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Heart Like a Wheel, but it, if you haven't. And that's homework for all you listeners, by the way, if you want to learn about the very first uh, female drag racer and so i challenge both of you to come up with a cocktail not today but when we have you back to come up with a cocktail with cavassier with sip smith in her honor since we have a female-led show and we have a bunch of um great female minds on today's oh, episode i really i got excited when you started talking about race car driving cocktails i would love to also come up with a drink for my uncle gary who was a stock car racer mm-hmm. um so I love like, stock cars and funny cars. I would love yeah. to have a drink called a stock car. Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. Because <laughs> we have a sidecar. Yeah, there's a sidecar. We have a cable car. A sidecar. There's a cable car. But I've never heard of a stock car. Mm. Mm, a stock car inspired by Shirley Modowney and, and by our episode today. What do you think, Kelly? I see your brain. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm just going through all the flavors. I'm like, what else can we throw it in there? Well, it's <laughs> definitely going to be more gin than cognac. So we know that already. <laughs> Shock and horror. <laughs> and, I, and I know she didn't drive a funny car. She drove a stock car. But I, I love like how, I don't know. And here we're getting onto racing for just like one little second. But I love how at, at night, how when you watch the funny cars race, you know, you just see like the flames and they're so loud and so much fun. Well, I decided that if this gin thing wasn't going to work out, I was going to go to the monster truck school in Ohio. There's a monster <laughs> truck university that I totally want to do. Try one of the monster and go over the cars. Like, sorry, mom. I, I didn't want to tell you this way, but I've <laughs> left this world behind. I'm going to be a race car driver again. <laughs> I love it. Well, you are a race car driver. You're, you're a race car driver of gin. My goodness. Being a brand ambassador for Sip Smith and really putting out that good word um, about the brand. It's pretty amazing. And I respect you both. And I'm so completely honored that you came on our show. Oh, my goodness. Same here. So great to chat with both of you ladies. Thank you both so much. I mean, it's always, again, as I said, such a pleasure to be able to, one, share our story, but also share our spirit stories and how they came about and um, show that, you know, there's more than just how they're perceived. There's also, um, you know, take a chance, try something new, 
and uh, try and uh, do what you would normally like to do. Like, how do you normally drink? Just try something new in that drink and you know you're gonna get something you like. It's just gonna show a little differently. Keeps you from getting bored. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly, do you have any last um, words of wisdom to leave for our listeners? Uh, Well, I mean, I think the great thing about this is, you know, they're cocktails. It's not necessarily rocket science. And, you know, even if it's not a great experience or experiment of, you know, split-based cocktails of uh, cognac and gin, it might still taste really good and just go for it. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to be, it's okay to be wrong. There's some people that don't want to be wrong when it comes to drinks and you never know what you like until you, you try it. And gin and cognac, we work better when we're together. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just like the two of you, just like Julie and I, right. Better together. I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining Served Up. We can't wait to have you back. We can't wait to see what your Shirley Modani cocktail is. We can't wait for all of our listeners to find out who the heck she is and why she is important for females for sure. And um, thank you. And I hope that all of our listeners are grabbing a Cavassier Smith cocktail right now. Yes. And cheers to everyone. Chin chin. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>